Book genres are so 20th century. No, 19th century. They made sense when each book needed to be placed on a physical shelf so people could find similar titles. But what if you want to find a vampire romance, a post-apocalyptic comedy, a Western mystery where the main character is an android, a World War II adventure with magic, or a story based around a character of any race or religion or gender, set in any time or any place you choose. Scribble now brings searching for books into the 21st century, even if you're looking for one set in the 17th. Find the books you'll love by selecting the story elements that matter to you at scribble.com. You'll never look for books the same way again. Search by story elements only at scribble.com. That's S-C-R-I-B-L dot com. not love his father's grave is worse than a wild animal. Chief Joseph of the Nez Perces. The clerk pointed out the doorway behind Mark Lala with his bony hand. He had a hooked nose like a hawk and his voice gurgled a little as he spoke. He might have said his name was Pete. He looked slightly familiar. If Mark looked familiar to might be Pete, he didn't let on. There was no doubt to Mark that the man was old. The pitted wooden desk was not much better than two barrels and a plank of plywood like in the old westerns. He stroked the rabbit's foot key ring. The key was probably heavier than the lock it was supposed to open. Doors lined the motels, showing worn surfaces that left a little crack into lonely room after lonely room. As he requested, the clerk had given Mark a room all the way down the hall for privacy. Now he knew that was a sorry request. There was nothing but emptiness in or around the motel. His room was exactly as he imagined. Cable TV, full-size bed, customary nightstand, alarm clock, and adjoining bathroom. There was a little round table set up underneath the one big window, allowing for a majestic view of the parking lot. It was the type of room in which hookers visited their johns in bad movies. He threw his umbrella, coat, and bag on the floor and fell into bed. It squealed under his weight. The ticks of rain on the thin roof soothed him. It was nice to hear the sounds of nature, with only the occasional car splash by on the road. Pete, or whomever, had told him that it rained for 34 days straight in Canyon Park, a record. He had all those empty rooms because most of the people were leaving town, not coming to stay. Not that things were doing so good anyway since most of the manufacturing left. The owner thought he'd have to shut down by year's end if business didn't pick up. He'd probably go to Florida with his sons and daughter-in-law and look after the grandkids while they worked. Although he'd hate to leave his daughter in Canyon Park, seeing as she needed help too. It was tough for young people to make it these days on one salary, but it was their own fault because they wanted more stuff than he did when he was first married to his recently departed wife of 38 years. He had gotten all that information between checking in and getting his key. 
There was probably more, but Mark tuned out half of what the man said. In New York, a man could be arrested for telling someone that much about himself. He thought it funny the difference in people, especially himself. He used to be able to sit and sympathize with a guy like that. Now he had no care to know a thing about the guy except how much his rates were and did he take American Express. On the opposite wall was a reproduction of an oil painting. He recognized it right away. Anyone who lived in the area and studied art would. He carried the quaint image with him from rural Canyon Park to the concrete and steel canyons of New York. All the time he strove to find a little bit of that picture in the city, a dichotomy that spoke of his character, a steely structure around a pastoral soul. The colors were dark in the scene autumn. Land surrounded the Hudson River while a few sailboats ferried around. Some trees in the foreground lit toward the riverside as if watching the ships go by in a lazy way. It must have been late autumn because they were bare of leaf, surrounding them bushes of red and gold. Off down the slope, the painting was unbalanced by the sheer emptiness of the distant mountains dressed in fall color lying aside the river. He decided that when he returned home, he'd buy a good print of the painting. He was sure to find one. This version was a bad reproduction. The colors didn't shine as they were meant to. He knew that the artist relished autumn not as a fading season, but a celebration of color and change. It was an intimately religious experience. Here, in this room, especially with the gray outside, it looked like the picture was painted with mud alone by a troubled soul. He fell asleep thinking how unfortunate it was that the motel guests would ever have a faulty view of the artist's true intent. When he awoke, the rain was still there, pattering away on the motel roof. He decided to leave the depressing room and find something familiar in his old hometown. He remembered the all-you-can-eat place off the highway. After showering, he dressed and went back to the front desk. An equally old woman replaced the old man. The restaurant was still there in the same spot, except a new color orange on the painted wood panels that looked the same too. The glowing sign in the parking lot proudly displayed the fact that McIntyre's Route 24 Buffet was open for business 24 hours a day. It was a beacon to all hungry travelers. The Sentinel invited people to pull over and stay a while to enjoy its plastic seats and infinite amounts of chicken legs and green beans. Mark went in and promptly tried to meet the challenge on the menu for patrons to go ahead, bust your gut. A cartoon cowboy offered a plate of colorless glob on a plastic tray. He found that he missed the homogenous flavor of food in this type of place. The chicken tasted a little like the potatoes, and the dessert tasted a little like the metal trays in which it was served. It was nothing like the restaurants he was used to. It reminded him of childhood. Manhattan fare meant that he was a grown, responsible, busy adult. This food was of a place where an abandoned building had time to decay on its own accord. He remembered how the town degraded year after year, losing more jobs and more of its shine until, by the time he was off to college, Canyon Park was a place you wanted to be far from, not aspiring to. There was a long time ago when his family was drawn to the potential of Canyon Park and its industry. There was also a time when his parents inherited their positions and wealth from a conglomerate. He never knew them except through the memories of others, and he discovered that they were almost always fuzzy and incomplete. The fact was, they had died in a car crash when he was a toddler. Aunt Anne took him in. She never forgave Mark's father for some unspoken crime against her, and sometimes Mark felt the pain of that failure in sharp, drunken criticisms of his parents by Aunt Anne. Between middle school and graduation, Mark learned a lot about how selfish his father had been in life and death. He tried to take it all in stride because in between rants, Aunt Anne gave generously. Eventually, he grew fond of her and wrote her regularly, when he left the law school. 
So Mark ran home to Canyon Park when his Uncle Pete, on his mother's side, an accountant in the Lalo firm, called to say that Anne had died. Bring your rain gear, his uncle said. It's been raining 30 straight days. That was four days ago, and Mark watched as the record continued outside. He wondered aloud to Uncle Pete why a state of emergency hadn't been called yet with all that rain. Uncle Pete described the rain as a soft mist or a drizzle, but lately it had been really coming. Since Mark arrived, it had been a steady downpour. You want coffee, honey? Mark looked up at the young waitress. Her hair was messed, and a pencil stuck in a ponytail, where a china doll would insert an ivory stick. She was the opposite of that silken oriental image, with her thin, unsmiling face and premature wrinkles at the corner of her eyes and lips. Thank you, Mark said. He noticed the name tag stuck to a lace pocket that was on upside down. He thought of the harried way she must have left the house to not notice it. Sure, she said. Anything else? The dessert is over there. She pointed to the big display of variegated jello and muddy pudding. Your name tag's on upside down. I know, she said, finally smiling. Mark looked at her, searching the reason. Was it attention? Her way to pick up passing motorists for a tryst? Why, was all he could say. It's an icebreaker. She rested the smoking coffee pot on the table. Because people won't spend a minute to talk to you about anything, but they will tell you your name tag is on upside down. She shrugged. I guess I do it because I like people. Mark nodded in solemn agreement and awe at her simple wisdom. If you need anything else, my name's Millie. She pointed to the inverted tag on her lacy pocket and then walked away with her coffee pot, smoke trailing. Mark watched the rain try to douse the beacon to hungry travelers passing by on Route 24. Soon he was one of them, speeding past the sign on his way into town. The roads had an ominous look to them, reflecting squiggly headlights from the cars in white and red. They shimmied down the highway, most on their way somewhere else, hopefully sunnier. He pulled his car into a family legacy, an all-nighter with gas pumps outside. Unlike New York, here they let you pump first and pay later. At least the trust in human nature hadn't been washed away. There was something odd and encouraging in that. Trust. That was what was missing in New York City. The people were friendly enough and helpful in an emergency, but everyday trust was replaced by hurry. It wasn't necessarily selfishness, but a severe individualism. You needed calluses to live there. In Canyon Park, one could never live in isolation. No one died and lay rotting in an apartment for weeks without anyone knowing. It was amazing how this town, mostly rural, was a network of people and gossip and souls, where people in urbanized centers were so much less connected. People in New York were like streams of data passing each other by with no regard for the millions of other packets next to them. Here, every being was connected by an intentional web, cast large and wide. 1753, the clerk inside said to Mark. He contemplated letting the man know who he was because it seemed almost absurd that he had to pay for items from a store that his family owned outright. However, in the interest of not seeming arrogant, he dutifully shelled out the money. Do you know how the roads are into Canyon Park? He asked instead of his forfeited remark of, Do you know who I am? The man flexed his brain and stashed the money into the cash register. Not really, he said. Do you know if the Park Inn is still open? The man shook his head. Sorry, I don't know. I just kind of got out of jail. The sleeveless shirt and range of tattoos up and down the man's arm should have given it away, along with the poor hair and dental care. Mark wondered just who hired this guy and whom he needed to speak with in order to find out. 
and say Greenwich Village or Soho, a guy looking like this one in front of him working at a coffee shop, clothes, or music store might be an artist or a musician with some ironic attitude. When he first got to New York, it surprised him. But when you've seen people like that every day, the novelty wears off. And then you come to expect more from people, no matter how they look. It was at the same time disappointing and relieving to see that some people in the world were nothing more than who they appeared to be. That was it. Thousands of ex-cons walked the street of Manhattan, and he never knew one of them. Here, within seconds, he knew something deeply personal about this man. Trust was like the rain. It soaked into the fabric of the people. All right, I guess I'll take my chances. Sorry. He had a tooth just off the side that was brown and full of decay. He handed Mark a plastic bag with his items. Take it easy. He drove down Route 24. The road was wet and traffic moved slowly where there wasn't any. In the cobbled square, he parked in front of Con and Con Law Office. When he was a kid, he enjoyed walking along the dilapidated strip that was the town's main street. At the time, he never realized how run down his home had become, because in the black and white pictures of the Canyon Park in its heyday during the 20s, there were even a few gin joints. Everything looked old. Anyway, he thought the place always had a coating of charcoal smeared over the facade. The lawyer's offices used to be a bank, which moved to where the post office was until it moved next to the police station. He wondered if the bank even existed anymore, or if the new city bank he noticed on his way in took over the two-branch local bank. On the street, the rain kept most of the people inside. There was an eerie vacancy on the sidewalks. The glass fronts were all steamed up, so except for a few people who ducked under the rain, it was a street emptied of life. The pale gray sky and drab bricks reminded him of old photos. A lackluster throb remained of the abraded spirit where once he remembered at least a weak pulse. He thought that it was more than the rain. A lone figure sped by on a bicycle, his head down draped in an olive poncho, spearing through the storm. It was an old army-issue type cloak, as if the rain and the zombies who walked the streets were enemies to be shielded against. The reception area of the law office matched the outside perfectly, with wood floors and dark trim around the paneled windows. The girl at the wide, cluttered desk spoke into her headset while doodling. Mark got the impression that these were not the busiest of lawyers. He waited a few minutes for the girl to notice him and then cleared his throat to draw her attention. I'm here to see Mr. Khan, he announced, when she slowly took her eyes from the doodles. My name is Mark Lalo. His name got a reaction. I'll be right with you, she said, and then excused herself from the person on the other end of the phone. Have a seat and I'll get Mr. Khan. Left alone in the reception room, he marveled at how the Lalo name inspired people to action. Whether from fear or true respect, almost everyone in town jumped when a Lalo was around. Two men walked into the room, followed by the receptionist. One was neat, conservatively dressed, in an olive wool jacket over suspenders and a red bow tie. It was nothing like the sharp-suited men he was used to at work. This man seemed comfortable with himself and his demeanor. The other was dressed in a suit that Mark would have thought fit more in the Hamptons than Canyon Park. He was casual, a blue blazer with a white shirt, no tie. His pants were khaki and pressed. His face was dark, and he had the distinctive eyes of an Indian. He was handsome and trim, his hair pulled back and a dark black ponytail braided to the middle of his back. The Indian looked hard at Mark as he passed him, as if he knew him already and didn't like him at all. Mark gave him a friendly nod, half trying to disarm the man and half trying to come to peace with him for whatever perceived evil the man thought Mark had done. I know you, the man said. We were in school together. Mark couldn't place him, unusual for a school in which the graduating class was above 100 in the best of years. 
I'm sorry, Mark said, extending his hand. I don't remember. The man stood with his arms at his side, one hand holding a briefcase. Mark Lalo, right? Yes, I'm sorry, but I don't remember. My name was Daniel Smith. Now I'm Daniel Smallpaw. I'm an attorney, and I represent the reservation here against the state in a land reacquisition case. He finally extended his hand. You're a lawyer now too, right? Mark recognized the face and the name, although he had thinned out and neatened up since school. Daniel was an Indian who transferred into the regular high school after the state came in and made them close down the boarding school. He remembered Daniel as a fat, quiet kid who didn't do very well in school, and who, at the time, could understand very little English. He'd obviously come a long way. I remember you now, Daniel. How are you? He shook Daniel's hand. I've been better. Mr. Khan and I here were discussing some of the details of a settlement. It seems we're going to court after all, right, Mr. Khan? Khan looked nervous. Now, Mr. Smallpaw, you know that we're not supposed to discuss this, especially in front of an outsider. He's not an outsider, Daniel pointed a thumb at Mark. He's a plaintiff. I think since you're in town, Mr. Lalo, I'd like to talk to you a little if you don't mind. Mark shrugged. Apparently, he'd stepped into the middle of another of his family's dirty dealings with the local reservation. Sure, he said. Mr. Smallpaw, please leave now. Mr. Khan was furious. Yes, sir. Daniel patted Mark on the back and left. I'm sorry about that. Little beads of sweat formed on the bald spot on his head. I'm glad to meet you. I'm Mr. Khan, he said and extended his hand. The receptionist watched the proceedings from behind the wide desk. I'm sorry about your aunt. She was very dear to us at the office. We enjoy the family so much. His voice would have sounded insincere coming from someone not wearing a bow tie. Mark hadn't had much time to grieve since he heard the news. Thank you, he said, noting that this man, whom he had never met, was consoling him for a loss that meant so little to him that he didn't even show up for the funeral. He suddenly feared that Mr. Khan would mention this fact. He felt naked to it. In this small town, politeness and custom sounded for much more than in New York. I didn't get to the funeral. I was busy rearranging my schedule to come, he said, apologizing. I suddenly regret it. I understand, Mr. Khan said, in a way that made Mark feel that the man at least knew how to sound like he understood. Come on in. He followed the lawyer down a narrow hallway with five or six frosted glass doors. His was the office on the right. The room itself was sparse, but tastefully decorated. There was no indication of how much money the law firm made off his family. No great extravagances or artwork decorated the walls. Mark liked that. Instead, the room reflected everything that Mark assumed about the man already. He was particular, orderly, and probably neurotic. He also saw that Mr. Khan hadn't changed his style in clothing or decor in about 30 years. Mark sat in a standard office chair as the lawyer took his own. How's New York? Mr. Khan asked. Fine. Mark was defensive and he recognized it right away. Small talk usually meant that the person was about to hit you with something big and he was trying to break the ice to soften the blow. Carnegie Hall reopened. That's news. Ah, he said. I read about that. They put in a new hall downstairs. It sounds great. I was there opening night with some clients. Mr. Khan nodded. This weather up here is awful, he finally said. Constant rain. Mark adjusted his position and crossed his leg. He tried to get comfortable. What's with that? I heard it's over 30 days now. 34, but I am trying to lose track. The friendly smile faded from Mr. Khan's face. Strange, all this rain. It could account for some of the odd things happening around here. People are just going mad. 
I heard that constant rain and cloudy days makes people depressed. Did you know that Seattle has the highest suicide rate in the country? I heard, Mark said. You know, I've seen some pretty weird people around since I got here. I guess that explains it. There's also rumors about the reservation, Mr. Khan said. He leaned over his desk. The police are investigating some of the elders down there. Might be a connection. You never know about these things. They have all those strange rituals. It's like voodoo. They could put a curse on you with a snake charm or something. Mark nodded politely, even though what the lawyer had said sounded racist and superstitious. I'm sure it'll work itself out. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if they'd everything to do with this damn rain. Mark saw the tight facade of the lawyer unravel a little. His voice sounded stressed. It's pretty weird. Now they're trying to take back some of their supposed historical lands. They got a case going. He leaned back and stared. Mark, your aunt didn't die of natural causes. The family didn't want you to find out in a letter, so they thought you would want to be told in person. Besides, the police didn't want it to get out yet. I don't understand. Ms. Lalo was murdered. We think it's a serial killer. Mark collapsed back into his chair. H how do they know? They've been other killings. They match in mode and weaponry. Why didn't anyone tell me? He didn't want to hear anything else about the details. His aunt was dead. That's all he had to know. He heard about serial criminals all the time. It was nothing new. It just proved that his hometown had grown up a little. Well, Mr. Calm looked uncomfortable. When you didn't show up for the funeral, the family expressed an interest in distancing themselves from you. They thought it rude. The whole family had just disowned him by proxy. He couldn't believe it. Not that he ever paid attention to any of them since he left anyway, but just knowing he had relatives somewhere was always comforting. Despite the accusations and talk about his parents, he still held the ancestry close to his heart. Now facing this simple, small-town lawyer, he missed him more than he realized. Mark sighed. He tried to will his eyes dry. I guess then that takes care of it, he said. Mr. Khan looked sincere again. Not exactly. There is the will and Ms. Lalo's wishes. What are they, he asked, thinking about the last thread he had to this town and the family, now severed. It's all here, the lawyer said and patted a brown envelope on his desk. To summarize, you get the proceeds from the sale of the house and all its contents. There are checks in there. You gain none of Ann Lalo's controlling interest in the company except a small buyout to be determined by the board of directors. Great, Mark said. What a time to piss off the family. The self-deprecation felt good. Well, I think that there are some who are forgiving of your faux pas and will be more than fair. Mr. Khan stood and extended two hands, one for a handshake and the other with the will. Mark, I am sorry about your aunt. I know that you shared a special bond with her, especially after your parents. He drifted off into some memory. I knew them, and they were fine people, Mark. Really good. Some things just don't work out for folks, and they... Mark smiled as they exchanged handshakes in the envelope. I understand, Mr. Khan, and thank you for your honesty. Mr. Khan escorted Mark to the reception desk. As you don't find as much of that in the big city, he said. What's that, Mark asked. Honesty. If you remember, Mark, before you left, how folks here are. We're not always savvy, but we're honest. Again, he found himself smiling at the man. He was right. There was an underlying ignorance and narrowness of the people in Canyon Park. He couldn't get away from it fast enough when he was young. He stepped out into the wet sidewalk with that word on his mind. The rain had tapered to a drizzle. The sky was concrete and steel. The air was chilled. Honesty didn't really describe what he missed about home. 
It was more than that. You could find honesty anywhere. It was not like everyone you met in the streets of New York was a liar and a crook. There were real good people there. He happened to work and socialize mostly with the other kind, the insincere and the shallow, but that made no difference. He felt that depth sinking into his body. He'd been experiencing it since he came back to this soaked little town. From the rain to the kid at the convenience store to this lawyer, the goodness was not what he remembered. Somehow the town felt exposed, eroded. by Lon S. Cohen. To find out more, please visit www.coenside.blogspot.com. This patio book is a production of Zilco Studios. <laughs> this production is a production. <laughs> okay.